the BioWorld Insider Podcast. This is the BioWorld Insider Podcast. I'm Lynn Yaffe, BioWorld's publisher. Complex manufacturing processes and supply chains have always been part of the biopharma industry story. Life-changing medicines are grown and synthesized across the world every day. Along the way, a multitude of contractors, regulators, and logistical challenges are involved. But no event has brought this piece of the industry into sharper focus than the COVID-19 pandemic. To help us take a closer look at the issues the pandemic has raised, from API shortages and manufacturing mistakes to the rattled supply chains and fast-changing goalposts, we've invited Paul Testa, who is the Executive Vice President for Operations and Supply Chain at Tokyo-based Kiwa Kirin. Today, Kiwa Kirin is the eighth-largest Japanese biopharma company by market cap, with nearly $2.8 billion in 2020 sales, with expectations that it will break $3.1 billion in 2021. Some of the company's biggest growth drivers are Crisvita, a monoclonal antibody for an inherited form of rickets, a long-lasting form of Nulasta for oncology indications, and Potoligio, another MAB targeting two types of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Paul has more than 30 years of experience in a mix of operational roles along the biopharma supply chain, including stints in manufacturing, operations, procurement, and management. Paul is on the line today with Bioworld Managing Editor Michael Fitzhugh. Over to you, Michael. Thanks, Lynn. It's great to have you here, Paul. How are you? I'm great, Michael. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about manufacturing and supply chains with you. It's not only that they're topics with special geeky appeal for me, but also um, because of how you're coming to it from a really, right now in a really modern context with Kiowa Kieran, but also working for a company that has roots going back to Kieran Brewery all the way back in the early 1900s. Can you tell us just a little bit about the backstory of Kieran and how you came to join Kiowa Kieran? Well, I think you've got it right. So the backstory of Kieran itself, it does go back to Kieran beer, right? So most people um, that have traveled the world um, have a good understanding. Uh, for those that don't, Kieran is a name like Anheuser-Busch here in the U.S. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a very long-standing historical brand name in Japan itself. But over the course of time, Kiwa Kieran spun out of that because of the uh, desire to get um, you know, more into healthcare as opposed to maybe lifestyle brands or, or, or beverages. So Kiwa Kieran has been working at the pharmaceutical and uh, healthcare business for quite some time now. And uh, certainly the growth that we've seen here in North America in the last several years has catapulted Kiwa Kieran as a healthcare brand into a much different place as it relates to brand recognition here in the U.S. So it's been a fun journey. Um, I joined Kiwa Kieran in the latter part of 2019 to create the uh, supply chain and operations function here in North America. So previously, uh, North America was treated by uh, Kiwa Kieran as, if you will, all other businesses around the world, you know, not unlike what we do in developing markets um, for U.S.-based companies. But uh, Kiwa Kieran has you know, really grown significantly here in the U.S. Um, over the last couple of years, and, and we've got an exciting future to look forward to as well. So now at that time that you joined COVID-19, as we know it, it hadn't really emerged on the world stage yet, right? That's right. In the, uh, in the dark ages, if you will. Yeah. 
it seemed like light times by comparison to me. That's right. What so what like what were your what were your priorities back then and how did COVID's arrival change them? Well, so the priorities back then were not drastically different, uh, believe it or not, than they than they are today from a supply and operations perspective. So in the healthcare business, you know, all of my colleagues that work in in pharmaceuticals, I mean, it's it's all about the patient. So we really try to focus on the patient and the innovations that uh, can continue to advance human healthcare via the medicines that we have to offer. So, so for us, it was about continuity and reliability of supply and implementing, developing and implementing business processes and the related automation such that we could scale those business processes. So a lot of those priorities way back in 2019 haven't drastically changed. Certainly, there's an added layer of complexity with COVID and a lot of the you know, intricacies of, of managing those details um, that we all deal with, right? We deal with it with, uh, you know, with toilet paper and food supply and, and uh, building materials and all these other things. But the, but the difference in healthcare is, well, there's a patient waiting. So we can wait for toilet paper or you know, building materials, but the patient cannot wait um, because you know, their healthcare is at stake. So, so we really try to layer in you know, additional uh, safeguards relative to continuity and reliability of supply. So those, uh, th those priorities haven't drastically changed over the last two years. Just some of the layers of complexity in terms of what we focus on and how we try to deliver those things have, uh, have changed a little bit. So on the continuity and reliability front, I, I remember as the pandemic was really beginning, one of the first sort of concerns that emerged in the U.S., but not exclusive to the U.S., I guess, was a real concern about dependence on, on China for APIs and other countries as well. What became of that concern? I mean, did it endure? I, you know, and I'm not speaking specifically to Kiwa, of course, but just like generally within the industry. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would say, so in general, I think it has endured. Global reliance on either API, uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients, or other key uh, components that make, you know, either a pharmaceutical or in some cases, you know, medical devices or other diagnostic-based products. Let's call it healthcare in general. You know, when when you first develop a product, you you want to get the best source, but sometimes those uh, excipients or those starting materials happen to to be in uh, you know parts of the world, not unlike you know some of the rare metal discussions that we hear about with Apple and you know, other uh, consumer-based products. So, so for pharmaceuticals, I think there was probably, and, and maybe still is, an over-reliance on some of these starting materials, active ingredients, um, you know, key, uh, key excipients at the front end of the process. I think there's been a good amount of work to uh, minimize the shorter-term impact. And then more importantly, I think there's been um, a lot, many companies I think have done a lot of work to, to really reduce those longer term um, reliance on, uh, you know, maybe less reliable uh, supply uh, sites or, or maybe uh, supply sites which may get tied up in you know, geopolitical matters, you know, not unlike China or maybe, uh, you know, maybe some other areas. Now, we need to be a little careful such that we don't turn this into a, you know, a nationalistic supply chain discussion because that's yeah. not necessarily helpful either from an innovation perspective. But certainly, um, I think we play different, uh, if you will, war game scenarios about what the future may be and, um, and try to avoid some of those surprises that we should have seen coming. 
Some of my colleagues at BioWorld have written about uh, both the U.S. and India creating public-private consortiums to sort of onshore manufacturing. Has that had any impact and has you know, that happened to any degree within Kiowa? Um, not as much within Kiowa. I think that is something where um, you know, we do have opportunities to, to, to take a closer look at and, and potentially move forward. You know, so, so the easy, um, you know, I think the public version of how we've mobilized around uh, COVID vaccines had to do with, um, you know, some of the some of the work that was done to to accelerate essentially what was a government industry partnership for not only the data for the filing and approval of you know, vaccinations, but equally the, the, the mass production of them. Right. So so if you think about what's happened over the last couple of years, we, we didn't know what COVID was and, and now we have a vaccine and, and we also have subsequent boosters for it. So so that what is normally a five to 10 year development and implementation process um, was executed in what, 18 months or so. So that's that that's incredible. And, and I think that's a sign of what can be done when all of the parties work together as opposed to sort of stay in their own lane and do the process that we used to have. So, so I do think a lot of those public-private partnerships um, as proven in a time of emergency over the last couple of years, um, I, I think they do provide some promise for what the future could look like and you know maybe maybe some opportunities. Now from a from a straight on supply perspective um, and or capacity utilization perspective, um, you know, those things are true as well. But the easier example for me is that the innovation um, associated with um, uh, whether it be you know vaccine or medicine development, but equally um, uh, you know, the approval process in terms of uh, the data that's required by uh, government agencies to prove uh, safety and efficacy of products. You know, one of the, um, you mentioned automation earlier, and so I I guess I, I draw a line from that to potential efficiencies and speed up of process. It, as you, you know, talked about the sort of amazing rate at which things were able to come together early in the pandemic to make these vaccines possible so quickly. I was wondering, are there other elements of change um, within the manufacturing supply chain landscape that are, you know, forever different now where there's been a mind, you know, sort of a, a shift in thinking that's enabled and could enable future speed at the, the rate that the response happened here? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, um, there are probably other folks that might be better suited to speak about the the details of manufacturing processes. I think it's many of the same things that I'll speak about, but just applied in, you know, a manufacturing plan, a bioreactor setting, those sorts of things. <clears throat> but if okay. we just, you know, if we just think about supply chain, right? So, so I think it's been well documented that um, the digital um, adoption curve. It hasn't really changed. It's just accelerated significantly, right? So our reliance on Amazon, our reliance on Zoom or Teams, um, our reliance on you know so many of the online tools that we um, have been able to to use to essentially you know live life quote unquote normally over the last couple of years, like those things are all uh, automation related. So as it relates to supply chain, um, you know where is my product and when is it going to be delivered and um, the exchange of data associated with that product in, in you know, the healthcare space, all those things are, are uh, very important. And 
you know, if we go back, whatever, 25 years to use the exaggerated example, all that was done on paper. Well, now nobody wants paper and bad things can happen with paper, right? Can get lost, can get, sure. can get damaged. Um, you know, there can be mistakes with that. But if we can automate those processes, well, now we've significantly accelerated the journey of the product from whatever the manufacturing site through the distribution chain to the patient in this particular case. So, so you know, the Amazon effect is alive and well in healthcare supply chain. Um, there are much more sort of many more layers of validation that need to be done um, in order to make sure that uh, that can be done properly uh, and effectively and the same way every time. But essentially, it's the same idea. So some of those automation uh, pieces, you know, that I mentioned earlier, right, via, uh, you know, conference calls or, or you know, ordering, uh, ordering groceries, the same sorts of things um, certainly apply in the healthcare um, product supply space as well. I've been reading also in BioWorld that some of the um, inspections that have caused delays of, uh, of reviews or even leading sometimes to um, complete response letters for products have been able to be facilitated by video calls now. Have you seen that? Has that had an impact? And do you think that that's going to continue in the years ahead? I don't know if it will continue. I certainly think that there's more of an opportunity for, for that to happen. But again, right, we, we need to decide, okay, is this, is this an ideal use of technology or is this an acceptable use of technology in a time of an emergency? So, so I'm not sure about the last part. Will it continue? Um, we haven't directly seen that um, within our own company yet. We have done our own uh, many of our own internal auditing processes have been uh, continuing to run um, largely virtually, almost entirely virtually. But relative to um, you know regulatory agencies, FDA in, in the U.S., they have done some of that work, and I know they're working now to you know really uh, try to kind of get back on schedule as it relates to you know their normal inspection processes with uh, you know with companies like ours, company like Kiwa Kieran, or other companies in the industry. Um, you know, I think there's there is a use of technology, but as as like anything else, it needs to be fit for purpose and it needs to be done um, done properly. Otherwise. There can be a significant loss in um, effectivity as it relates to how that process is executed. So, so um, you know, I think there are some opportunities, and I think it's worth um, again some partnership across the industry. And again, I'll say the manufacturers of the industry as well as the regulators of the industry. Um, I, th I think there are some opportunities in terms of um, you know doing some things a little bit differently that might be might result in a better outcome for everybody. Turning to the supply chain side of things, another issue that's developed during the pandemic has been around demand. I mean, enormous demand for vaccines or other drugs and diagnostics is sometimes spiking, you know, depending on what the current circumstances are. Various regions and countries have seemed to kind of take different approaches to the uneven nature of demand for products over time. Is any sort of coherent strategy emerging to deal with that kind of uneven demand? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, so, so you think about it, right? We started off with masks and then we got into sort of vaccinations and just the simple notion of, okay, there's whatever, 7 billion people on earth and therefore there's 7 billion uh, glass vials that will be needed times two doses. 
and that demand didn't exist, uh, you know, two or three years ago, right? So, so as like anything else, um, you know, manufacturers will adjust their capacity to whatever the demand is, but we need to try to, you know, estimate uh, or project forward what that demand will be. So, so that's a very much a moving target at this point. So I think um, best in class processes have really tried to, you know, scenario plan what future demand might actually look like as it relates to, you know, in this particular case, it's, it's um, you know, vaccine production, but it could be tablets that would be treatment safe for, for COVID. Um, it could also be, you know, manufacturing capacity that has been uh, allocated to uh, the Defense Production Act. I mean, I think we're past some of those elements, but certainly there are other elements as well. So not to get, you know, too supply chain, you know, geeky on you, but, uh, but, but I, th- I please, do think, please. The, <laughs> I, do, I do think the, you know, the good old fashioned sales and operations planning process um, is one that tries to, you know, take a good look at what demand is projected to be, but any good SNOP professional would say, well, but what could the demand be? And give me the, you know, absolute best case upside scenario but equally give me the absolute worst case downside scenario. And then that at least gives us, um, you know, gives us a little bit of a, a, a control chart in terms of what we should be planning for. Um, now, again, right, we don't wanna plan on the most optimistic scenario nor the most pessimistic scenario, um, but I think we do need to have the opportunity to, to scenario plan each of those and, and try to better understand what would happen if uh, those things came through. And similar to uh, food production or you know personal products or healthcare, it's a similar process, and uh, it's it's one that that the discipline of a good SNOP process is it's not glamorous and it's not sexy, but it does allow for companies like mine or like you know many of the other ones that we uh, see and read about in the news on a day to day basis. It allows for for them to sort of better meet that. Uh, demand that is, to your point, it's it can be very volatile in times when demand or supply can be disrupted. So, so again, not sexy, but uh, that good old-fashioned uh, sales and operations planning process, which is sort of supply chain 101 taught in a university setting, is uh, is very much appropriate for managing through these situations. So beyond that skill set, as you build out your organization over time and as it evolves under your leadership, are there certain skill sets or areas that you foresee as becoming more important, you know, things that you that you want people to come to the table with, uh, you know, when they're joining, joining Kiowa or the industry in general? So in the time, as I said, so I sort of created a function here in North America for Kiowa Kieran, largely during the entirety of the pandemic. So you know, we've onboarded close to 20 individuals, uh, all virtually, and um, you know we've we've essentially built a, a full function supply chain organization in that time frame, and and we keep coming back to the same. I'll say non-technical skill sets, right? So, so we need people that are good at, uh, you know, the technical aspects of our business or the, uh, you know, supply chain planning or data analytics. But what we, what we also need are people who can zoom in to the details of a situation and then can zoom out to put the details of that situation in the context of uh, the business that we're in. We need people who can deal with ambiguity because, you know, as you know, and we've been talking about for a little bit now, 
none of us have all of the data and the data that we think we do have may not actually represent the, the, the good description of the situation as it might present itself tomorrow, right? So uh, dealing with ambiguity is something that's uh, is, is so important. And then I think, um, you know, the ability to, to collaborate and communicate with colleagues, whether they be colleagues within our own company or colleagues outside of the company, you know, business channel partners, even customers. That collaboration is so important to ensure that everybody is working, um, you know, on the same page or working to get on the same page. But then the communication aspects of that, especially in a remote world, um, those elements are so important as well. So there's probably a you know a quick summary of some of the sort of non-technical you know leadership oriented skills that uh, we've really tried to focus on in the last couple of years. Fantastic, Paul. Um, I think that one thing that I learned the longer I worked for BioWorld is how little I know about everything. I'm constantly you know just doing my best to keep up. But are there elements of your field or elements of what's going on with Kiowa right now that that you want to bring to the fore as we wrap up? I think a lot of people might not necessarily know so much about Kiwa Kieran. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people, a lot of companies, especially in the healthcare space, a lot of companies like to represent, you know, the patient. Here's what we're trying to do in the patient with the patient, um, for, in terms of improving quality of life. And, and we're not drastically different. We, we go a little bit further, um, in terms of how we, um, you know, try to represent that. And essentially we're trying to, um, get to a place where we can, um, make people smile. So whether it be employees or um, patients or customers, you know, we really focus on a series of healthcare conditions that, you know, need better uh, solutions, right? Uh, some of us that have been through the, if you will, the patient odyssey, I think we have a good appreciation for the fact that to your point, we, the, the more we know about human healthcare, the less we actually know about human healthcare <laughs> and, and how much more there is to do. So, so we really try to focus on having a profound impact on patients' lives. And that would allow for us to focus in the, you know, clinical and scientific breakthroughs. Um, but equally in collaborations that can expand our impact. Um, and then certainly from an employee perspective, you know, we really try to focus on um, not just those elements, but equally um, we, we do a heavy dose of, uh, you know, career development and, um, and accelerating skill development as well. So, so the way I try to describe it to people, um, yes, it's all about medicine and it's all about uh, patient outcomes and, and innovation and the commitment to life that is one of our uh, significant core values. But it's equally about um, working in the space of um, integrity, integrity for the patient and integrity of our processes. And, and um, I guess the, the, the last thought I'll leave you with is, given our Japanese heritage, we have um, a good amount of emphasis on wa, and wa in Japanese is this notion of uh, teamwork above all else. So, so that's, um, that element of um, significant amounts of intentional collaboration really allows for us to focus as an organization on delivering for our patients in the space of uh, our commitment to life and, uh, and trying to have a profound impact on healthcare as it relates to our patients' lives. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me, Michael. I've enjoyed our conversation. Paul, we really appreciate you sharing your excellent perspectives with Michael, me, and our listeners today, so thank you. As always, BioWorld will continue to keep you informed of all the most important scientific, clinical, and business updates in the field. That's our show for today. If you need to track the development of drugs, turn to BioWorld.com, follow us on Twitter, or email us at newsdesk at BioWorld.com. 
And if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for joining us. BioWorld, published by Clarivate, is a subscription-based news service, but all of our COVID-19 content, over 6,000 articles and data entries since the start of the pandemic, are freely accessible. <laughs>